Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, thank you for braving the storms, the rain, uh, the floods, coming to church today. Appreciate it. Um, story time. Uh, sometimes people ask me, uh, how did you and Megan meet? How do you guys connect? And long story short, I was part of a small, very small church plant in Annapolis. When I say small, I mean there were more people on stage than in the seats, that type of small. Uh, and I was kind of like the one of the only like young single people at the church. So whenever like somebody remotely young walked through the door, I ran to them. I was like, hey, how you doing? Whatever. And one day, you know, Megan uh, came, came to church. Uh, she was dating somebody else. It was her and her boyfriend that came to check out the church. I connected with them. Uh, long story short, we ended up uh, starting a young adult's a small group at Megan's apartment. Did that for, for a couple of years. Uh, at one point, Megan and, and the guy she was dating, uh, they broke up. The heathen left church because of what he does. Um, and Megan and I stayed friends and were close. And, you know, we started hanging out, spending more time together, and then the rest is history, and here we are. All that is to say, small groups are great, okay? <laughs> they work out. They work out. They're phenomenal. And you should join a small group, right? Um, no, but this thing, um, you know, telling you that, and the reality is that we're doing this series, we're calling Welcome, it's all about relationships, but, but kind of like the, the underlying kind of like part of the series is help us every season um, in the fall as we launch a small group's ministry again, we try to think, why do we do what we do? Why do we believe it's important for people to find connection in a group? Because the reality is that even though I just told you that story and I'm a firm believer in small groups because I'm, you know, I'm a success case. Um, that's not always the case, is it, right? Like, like, there are small groups that, if I'm honest, that I've been a part of that I've, you know, it's not like I didn't like the people, but we never really become close. Maybe you've experienced some of those types of groups. And, and sometimes there can be this cognitive dissonance that we get on stage and we're telling you all about community and how important it is and how important it is to join a group. And then you listen to us and you join a group and you sign up and, eh, you know what I'm saying? Like, that Denver, that Denver game on Thursday probably was more fun than what I just went through. Like, no church is, you're here, evidence of that. So no church is perfect, a joke. Uh, no church is perfect. Um, and at the same time, I, what I think that happens more often, it's not that there's necessarily something wrong with you. And it's not necessarily something wrong with the small groups that you've joined, but that just the nature of how we do relationships today particularly in this area of the country, tends to go away from deep, intimate type of connection that we long to see happen and kind of like pushes us more towards surface-level relationships. On the first Sunday of this series, Chad talked about this idea of orbit management, right? The part of the problem that we have is in today's society, we're so busy with so many different things. We have our people that we deal with at work and our families and our friends from college and our neighbors and, you know, the relationships that we have through our kids and the soccer team and whatever. And all of these relationships are vying for our time and for our attention. And we end up doing is trying to, like, you know, juggle all these different orbits but never really dig deep in a relationship in any of them because we just don't have the time or attention. The challenge of community is to move from those kind of like surface level types of relationships to uh, more intimate 
types of relationships, what the uh, therapist Will Miller calls refrigerator rights relationships. Sounds like a funny thing to say, but his whole theory is that, you know, somebody that you barely know is not going to walk into your house, go straight to your kitchen, open your fridge, and make themselves a sandwich, right? If they did, you would call the police. Or it's one of the friends of your teenagers that you've never seen before, but they'll walk straight into your kitchen, open the fridge, and make it a sandwich. That's just kind of like what they do, right? But, but the, the people that, that we know that are friends with us that would feel comfortable enough to do that or that we would feel comfortable enough to do that in their houses, those are probably deeper types of relationships, people that know us, that we know, people that trust us, people whom we trust. Um, and here's the thing. In our society, in the last 30 to 40 years of attachment, as blessed as we are as Americans, as prosperous as we are, there's all this depression. So where is it coming from? I'm convinced it's rooted in the loss of refrigerator rights relationships. Now, I think he's oversimplifying a much more complex issue. But to consider something for a second, there's a number of studies that had shown the positive impact of having close relationships. They help us cope with stress. They help us deal with trauma. So it's not hard for me to believe that having fewer of those relationships take a toll on us. And it seems that we do experience fewer of those relationships. The uh, American Soci Sociological Review published a study on social isolation, and they were kind of like tracking some questions over different decades. And one question was asked in 1994, how many close confidence, basically people that you trust outside of your immediate family you have. And in 1994, the answer was two to three. By 2003, the answer was close to zero. It's not only that we are becoming lonelier people, as Chad mentioned on the first uh, Sunday of this series, right, that we live in one of the loneliest areas in the country, it's that the relationships that we do have are shallower. And that's not good for us. And the question is, in a world with all of the time constraints and the modern pressures that we have to make this type of deep relationships, is there anything that, you're, that could be done? And you're not going to believe this. There's a passage in the Bible that I think speaks to this. So I want to take you to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Let's start reading on verse 12. Uh, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends as I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. You're probably familiar with uh, the Last Supper, right? That's, uh, that's part of where this scene is taking place. We have uh, Da Vinci's famous uh, depiction of the Last Supper. All the Gospels agree that, you know, on the night when Jesus was arrested, he had this final meal with his disciples. And in all the other Gospels, it's a shorter account. 
The Gospel of John, for some reason, dedicates a bunch of chapters. He goes from chapter 13 to chapter 17, kind of like depicting what's happening in the Last Supper. And the passage we, we just read in chapter 15 is part of this larger section where Jesus is talking about our relationship with him and how to remain connected to Jesus. He's also teaching about love and how the love that Jesus has shared with his disciples actually flows from the relationship of love that Jesus has with his own father. Let me show you. And these are uh, verses right before the passage you read. So this is verse 9. I have loved you even as the father has loved me. Remain in my love. So Jesus is saying, hey, how I have treated you, the type of relationship we've had, how I have loved you, is this mirror of how my Father loves me. Now, here's what's fascinating about this passage. There's a couple of very interesting connections going on. Jesus says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. And then he says, remaining my love. Now, remember what's going on here. This is the beginning of the end for this particular type of relationship that Jesus has with his disciples, with his physically present with them at all times and going from town to town, and they're spending basically every waking moment together. In a way, these are final instructions, right? Like imagine, God forbid, that you knew that today was your last day on earth. What types of conversations would you have with the people who are the dearest to you? Would you complain about the weather? Would you talk about your fantasy football lineup? No, right? You would probably talk about the things that are the most important. You're like, I may not have another chance. I, you need to hear this. This is kind of what's going on here. Jesus is about, about to be arrested and betrayed and crucified, and he's giving his disciples all these instructions and of all the things that Jesus chooses to dwell on and talk about is, is this idea of love and relationship. He's saying our relationship is about to change the way in which we continue being in relationship with one another. That's why he says remain in my love. What's interesting, though, is how he tells them to remain in his love. Verse 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus is saying, even if I'm physically going away, we can continue to have this relationship of love. You can continue to experience my love. And also, you can continue to show me love. And Jesus says, the way that this happens is by you continuing to obey my commandments. When you live the way I've told you to live, you're actually loving me. You're showing me love. Now, the question is, what does that actually look like? Because you would think, okay, if, if, if Jesus is giving this very important idea of this is how you're remaining in my love, maybe Jesus will explain a little bit what that looks like, and he actually does. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, the way you show me love one of the ways, one of the main ways apparently, is by loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. At one point in his ministry, Jesus gets asked, what's the most important commandment? And the answer Jesus gives, very famous, he quotes from the Torah and he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your uh, heart, body, and strength. 
Then your second command is just as important. Um, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we tend to think about those, those two commandments as separate things. We think about loving God and we think about some form of, you know, connection with God, spiritual disciplines, reading the scripture, praying. I believe in all that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. And we tend to think about loving our neighbor as being nice to people, right? Like don't run people over, like stuff like that, right? Like we, we, we love God, we love our neighbors. And we love to compartmentalize us into two separate things. What Jesus is doing here is kind of like blowing that notion out of the water. Because Jesus is saying, actually, the two are connected because the love I have given to you is the love that I have received from my Father. And the way that you remain in that love, meaning the way in which you love me and love my Father, meaning the way in which you love God, the first commandment, is by obeying my commandments. But why are my commandments? Well, love each other in the same way I have loved you. In other words... You can't love Jesus without loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the idea of conversation, because Jesus is giving these instructions in a particular setting, right? This is not a sermon outdoors. This is not Jesus preaching in the temple court. This is Jesus in a very intimate dinner with his closest disciples. Let's look at the picture uh, from Da Vinci again, right? We have this picture. Now, most famous depiction of the Last Supper, but if you think about it, this picture is probably not that accurate. Let me show you why. Right? It's not, Jesus is not sitting in this super long table and there's people over there and people over there and they're shouting, hey, can you pass the bread, right? And sorry, man, and like somebody's lighting the wine on the table. That, Actually, what the Last Supper looked like is probably something closer to this. It's a group of friends sitting close to one another in a circle. It's a very intimate meal. In other words, what I think is going on is that I don't think that when Jesus, when Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's saying, love each other. There's a way that we kind of like flatten that command and basically say, oh, well, I have to be nice to the people at my church. Or I have to be nice to all my fellow believers. That's true. You should be nice, by the way. We appreciate that. <laughs> but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is looking at his disciples, in this context of relationship, where we've walked with one another and done life together for three years and sat around the table and shared meal after meal, in this context... Love each other. And I think that that's what Jesus is getting at because of what he says next. So next is verse 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. So just keep kind of like giving you something and then painting the picture of what that looks like. So he's saying, if you love me, obey my commands. So watch my commands, love each other. And he's saying, by the way, there is no greater love than dying for your friends. Which all of a sudden adds two variables to this thing, right? One is dying, yikes, right? Like he's like going immediately to the highest level of sacrifice and commitment that you can show. But then it's also this idea that he introduces this relational element of friendship. I think that what Jesus is saying is that 
the types of relationships in which we are called to put in practice the command of loving one another is this deep, close, intimate, Christ-centered friendships and relationships. But there's more to that. Verse 14, you are my friends, he says, if you do what I command. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal for Jesus to say. I mean, these people have been hanging out for three years. You would think that at this point, they consider themselves, you know, homies, like something like that. They've been together a lot. But, but what you need to understand is that that's not how the disciples probably thought about themselves and the relationship with Jesus. Because remember, it's the first century. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a master. He's a teacher. And the disciples are, well, his disciples. They're his students, right? So like they, they think that Jesus doesn't like them, but for them, this is not a, a peer friends buddies relationship. They think of Jesus as their master. Calling someone a friend has this implication of a deeper relationship. In the Bible, the only other person that's actually called a friend of God is Abraham. Nobody else gets a title. And here is Jesus talking to his disciples, about to be arrested and eventually executed, sharing a meal with these guys that he has spent the last three years with, after having shared so many meals and having done so much life together in those three years. And he looks at them and he says, verse 15, I no longer call you slave. Treated or thought of his disciples about as slaves in the way that we think about the word, that's not really what's going on. So maybe like think servant, and it may help you a little bit more uh, understand what's going on here. The larger point is this. Jesus is telling his disciples that the type of relationships that he now has with them and that they ought to have with one another in which they can love each other in the way in which the Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved them has to be this deeper, closer, more intimate relationship than just the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple or a master and a servant. It has to be a relationship of friendship. This, uh, this is old worship song. I'm a friend of God. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it right now. But sometimes I wonder if we sing things without really grasping the depth of what we're singing. Same, I'm a friend of God. It's a wild thing to say. And here is Jesus talking to his disciples that he's been doing life with for three years. And he says, guys, I don't know if you know this, but we're friends. I'm your friend. I consider you my friends. Which also implies, by the way, you are Friends, being loved by God and loving God means that we become friends with God. But also loving each other in the same way in which Jesus has loved us means that we have to develop deep spiritual friendships with each other. We don't become friends with God without also becoming friends with each other. One of the reasons why we're pushing doing life in circles, why we're pushing and keep inviting you to join a group is because we want the people at the journey to find these deep spiritual friendships, these refrigerator rights types of friendships. And we think that groups are the best place where we can create the environment where these relationships can happen. Now, the question is, how do those relationships actually happen? Because, uh, you know, 
just by joining a group that doesn't actually click, right? Each other. Now, the question is, how do you build trust? Because my guess is that some of you, maybe most of you here at some point, had some relationships of this level of closeness, and then something happened. That person let you down. That person disappointed you in some way. Maybe, maybe even betrayed you in some way. So trust is not something that comes easy. So how do we foster trust? And Jesus also tells us that. So he keeps going. He says, now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the Father has told me. So for, for deep friendships to happen, we need trust. But for trust to happen, we need openness. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what the Father has told me. Jesus is saying, I'm not lying to you. I'm not pretending to be something that I'm not. I'm telling you all that the Father has told me. Jesus is saying, I am making myself known to you. What Jesus is saying is something that sometimes scares us because being open means this, that we become vulnerable. Because when we're open, we not only share the good, we also share the bad. Sometimes it means sharing our sins and our brokenness. Sometimes that means sharing our needs. Sometimes that means asking for help. And I found that in American society, that's one of the hardest things to do. One of the things I oversee here at the journey is our care. And we try to do most of our care primarily and first through our small groups because we believe that it's in those, you know, deep, close relationships that we can care for each other the better. And one of the things I've noticed is that it's hard a lot of times for people in a group to come up and say, I have this need and I need some help. And part of the reason might be kind of like our pride, but I think that part of the reason, too, is that we, we don't want to be a burden to somebody else, right? We, we believe that we're to, called to be independent. The uh, evangelist John Stott says this, I sometimes hear old people, including Christian people who should know better, say, I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. I'm happy to carry on living so long as I can look after myself, but as soon as I become a burden, I would rather die. But this is wrong. We're all designed to be a burden to others. You are designed to be a burden to me, and I am designed to be a burden to you. And the life of the family, including the life of the local church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So that's one element of openness and vulnerability, saying I have needs and I need help. But another element is that you're also opening yourself up for people to disappoint you, for people to let you down, for you trusting somebody with a secret and they telling somebody they shouldn't have told, for you to, you know, hoping that that person will be there for you and then not being there for you. I know what's funny, that Jesus is saying this in a table around guys that are going to forget him the second he gets arrested, in front of a guy that's going to actually betray him and turn him in, in, son of, in, in front of a guy who claims to be the person that loves him the most, who's going to say, I don't even know the guy. And yet Jesus, knowing this, is able to say, I am making myself open to you, which takes me to the next thing. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. What Jesus is saying there is that there's this intentionality behind how Jesus went about calling these 12 people. There's two implications to this, right? One is what I'm telling you. 
Jesus knowing that this, not all these people were going to make it, that not all these people were going to stick with him to the end, that some of them were going to betray him and disappoint him, and yet Jesus knowing that still takes a step. But there's another element of this, right? That intentionality of Jesus is the fact that he has for three years very deliberately shared his life with these men. It didn't happen back. He didn't connect with them when they posted something on Facebook and he remembered he hadn't texted them in three months. Right? He didn't just hang out with them because they're running to Starbucks at the mall and it was awkward to say we should hang out and not do it. So he put it in the calendar and ended up having coffee with the guy three weeks later. Right? No. Jesus made a point, a priority, I would say, in his life to spend time with these 12 guys. He chose them. He chose every day, chose them. Every day chose to do life with them. There's a level of discipline in that. One of the things that I found out uh, in my research about uh, friendship for this sermon is that from theologians and scholars to kind of sociologists, people believe that deep friendships need to be thought as developing a virtue. Like you're developing courage or humility. Actually, uh, I want to read you this quote from a sociologist. He says this. It turns out that friendship is something we can be more or less good at. And that this skill level is acceptable to change. Friendship requires virtues like courage and generosity and patience and self-discipline. You need to be willing and able to hang in there. To know when to keep probing and when to live well enough alone. You need to learn how to love someone in the way they need to be loved. Not the way you need to. You need to develop the confidence that beneath your natural self-defenses and stupidities, there is a good and well-intentioned person who shares a lot with you and who wants to love and be loved. You need to endure some very difficult interactions to build up this stamina. As Aristotle said, this kind of virtue is built up over time through practice. If you want to become courageous, you need to begin acting courageously. It will hurt at first, but the more you do it, the less it hurts. And you will know when you have become truly brave, because courageous actions will come to feel good. In other words, the friction of being with people is a sign that you need to stay with people until you become better at it. This is true not only of developing friendships in general, but I think it is particularly true of building friendships at the church. Think about this group of people that were here, right? The way we do our groups is uh, primarily by geography, which means you're going to end up in a group with people way younger than you, way older than you, in a completely different stage of life, completely different socioeconomic background, completely different educational background that think different and vote different. Like, you can end up in a group with all these group of people, and it's really hard to build friendships in that context, right? With people that agree with us, it's, it's hard to build friendships. Imagine with people that we don't know what they think. And yet, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that if we devote ourselves to it, if we are intentional about it, if we're open and vulnerable, there's something about showing up week after week and sitting around the table with the same people, and particularly in the context of groups, around the Word and the Spirit, the presence of God, the very slowly... The command that Jesus gives at the end, love each other, starts happening. That, that this Holy Spirit is just kind of like binding our hearts to his people. Um, I'd like to read this website called The Ringer. They do like basketball and pop culture stuff. And one of their writers, a guy named Jonathan Sharks, and he writes some podcasts about basketball. And a couple years ago, uh, he says that uh, he, 
he announced that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I knew that he was a Christian because of, I follow him on Twitter. I kind of like stopped posting and everything because he was just focusing on the treatment. And uh, about a year ago, he posted a piece um, reflecting on his time with cancer, his diagnosis, talking, thinking about his son. His name was Jackson. Is Jackson. He's about two years old. Thinking about his dad because his dad had been point, everybody stopped showing up. Says, but, and, and then I want to read you this. It says, my dad died when I was 21. Says, there were a bunch of people at his funeral whom I hadn't seen in years. They all told me how sorry they were and asked whether there was anything they could do. All I could think was, I don't know any of you. I know of you. I've heard your names. But I don't know you. There was a sense in which he felt abandoned by his father's friends because they stopped showing up. They keep breathing, and at some point the article kind of like takes a turn that I wasn't expecting. He says this. I was nervous the first time I went to a life group. I joined a church the week before, and one of the pastors, a guy a few years older than me, invited me. It was a smaller group of people who met at his house every week. I remember walking up to the door and not knowing what to expect on the other side. There were about a dozen people in the living room talking to each other. I didn't know any of them besides the pastor, and I barely knew him. I didn't know what to do, so I did what most people would do. I headed over to the table with snacks. Eventually, the chatter died down, and everyone sat in a circle in the living room. They all introduced themselves with an icebreaker, something about their favorite TV show or their favorite snack. I was thinking either I'm supposed to say I'm an alcoholic or this is a cult. <laughs> but nothing that exciting happened. They sang a few songs and they talked about the Bible for a while. At the end of the meeting, everyone paired off to pray for each other. And the pastor asked me what I thought of the group. Then he asked if I would come back. I said, I guess, but I wasn't sure. That was seven years ago. Some of those strangers from the house that first night are now some of my closest friends. It didn't happen overnight. It took me a long time to feel comfortable. I usually came after the life group had already started and left as soon as it was over. But I was seeing the same people every week, and I was telling them about my problems. They were telling me about theirs. Do that for long enough, and you become friends. You get to know enough people that way, and life goes from being an obligation to something you look forward to. Making the commitment to come every week is still hard. There are always other things to do. Sometimes you're tired or you had a long day or you just don't feel like it. Even, it's even harder once you get married and have kids. Nor are the people always easy to deal with. You may not have a lot in common. You have to search for things to talk about. You can be vulnerable with people and they don't always respond how you would expect. And you certainly won't always agree with them on how they see the world. The past two years haven't been easy or life have been over soon for a while. People ask me whether I have to be more careful because of my condition and the pandemic, but it's really the opposite. I don't have the luxury of waiting for life to get back to normal. This might be the only time that I have. I can't imagine not being in a life group at this point. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. It's like the song from Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Life group... It's a different kind of insurance. People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick, but relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, 
But could have used some of his friends. Now, at the end, he says this. I have already told some of my friends, they're from his group. When I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask. Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Does my son know you? I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses, why there are so many of them at his games. I hope that he gets sick of them. One thing I have learned from this experience is that you can't worry about things that you can't control. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time that I have left. That means investing in other people so they can be there for him. Why do we encourage you and invite you to join a group? Why am I telling you that when you finish this, there's a table right outside with somebody ho hoping to help you connect with a group? Why am I telling you that on your app, there's a bunch of groups that you can join? It's not because it's another box we want to check. It's because we want to be the type of place where the Jonathan Sharks of the world, that are suffering, that are being hit by tragedy, if they ask a question, does my son know you? We can be the type of people that can answer, yes, of course. And we believe that that happens in the context of groups. Last week, uh, when the tale was going on, I saw so kind of like, all the churches, ironically, right, like we sing in rows and we rearrange them in circles. And I look at a picture like this and I think, how many stories are represented in that picture? People that will face highs and lows in life. People that will need other people. And my hope is that all of the people in that picture, that all of you, can find that type of deep, intimate community. That you may learn through your friends at church that Jesus is your friend too. 